I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, welcome back. It is good to be together again. Uh, and uh, Seth, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited about our guest. Yeah, th- we can't get rid of this guy. Yeah. What do you just, call a recurring just, guest? Uh, I don't know. Last time I was a special guest. I think I've been demoted to guest this time. Yeah, we right. like showed up in this studio, and he's like been sitting here ever since we <laughs> recorded the last one, just waiting to be part of this. So does he know his mic is off? <laughs> no, I think his mic's on. But we are glad to have our now recurring guest, Matthew Brazelton. How are you, Matthew? Doing great. Great. How are your How are your boots? They are as good as ever. That's pretty great. Sorry for the boring question, guys. Yeah, it's going to get better from here. So this is part two of our follow-up to Ask Anything. So I guess it was on January 2nd, we had a service where people texted in a bunch of questions. I think we got north of 80 questions or so. And so last episode, if you had didn't get a chance to listen to it, we did some follow-up on, on those. And this is going to be our second and I think final follow-up on this. We've got another uh, 10 or so questions that we want to look at and try to uh, provide some good answers to, hopefully. Our next follow-up will likely be the first Sunday of next year. It'll just be about 51 weeks from now. That's so. true. That's true. So uh, these are in a number of categories, Christian living, theology, uh, evangelism, missions, cultural issues, uh, just kind of there's more in this time, a little bit more just questions about our church and stuff like that. So let's uh, let's just get to it. Um, these first couple of questions are kind of both related to kind of how we do music and worship services. So here's the first one. What is the purpose of the smoke fog haze used during services? Why do we do that? Great question. I'll jump in here. Um, so there's a number of different things kind of you could think about um, as it relates to kind of the physical expression or um, the way that we kind of approach production. Uh for as long as there have been spaces to meet in for God's people, those spaces have been designed to try to evoke certain um, emotions and responses in the worshipers. Uh, this goes back all the way to the first century where they would design um, even like baptismals, for instance, in the shape of a cross or something like that um, to the middle ages when cathedrals were constructed to um really lift kind of the affections of the people <clears throat> worshiping heavenward through with stained glass and vaulted ceilings and even incense would be kind of distributed um, at various times and the light would kind of catch the, the smoke from the incense and fill the room with kind of a heavenly feeling. Um, you even see this pre-Christ in the tabernacle, the way the tabernacle was designed um, and then the temple after that, uh, once again, to kind of tell true stories about God and his glory and his goodness and um, kind of the transcendent meeting the imminent. Uh, And so we kind of continue that tradition along with lots of other churches um, to try to use the cultural forms that speak the language and dialect of the people in our culture and our community to kind of raise the affections of the people um, heavenward. So that's, that's one um, way that's done. It, it also enhances the online experience. It makes the, um, when, you're, when you're watching online, it makes things look less kind of two-dimensional, a little more three-dimensional. The light yeah, It seems of, like it helps the lighting. Yeah, the lighting. The room. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have lights that do a lot of the things you're talking about, stained glass kind of feel, and, yeah. but it's hard to see it if you can't see the light, right? Yeah. If you just see where the light hits. Well, one of the things fog and haze does is provides more for that light to hit. And so it helps just fill the room with some color yeah. and depth. Yeah. I think the, the thing that I just like to point out is that every generation does this. Every generation tries to utilize the tools at their disposal and their cultural form to kind of create an environment that, that honors the Lord and that is worshipful. And um, it doesn't always connect with everybody, but that is what our team is striving towards. And I think overall doing a great job. Anything you'd add to that, Seth? Winston Churchill was talking about why they're spending so much money on rebuilding buildings after World War II. And one of his quotes he said was, we form our spaces and afterwards our spaces form us. Hmm. And he was doing that in an argument for people saying, why are we spending this money on these buildings? You know, and that's well, even if you look at in the Old Testament, you have the book of Leviticus, which in painstaking detail articulates 
the beauty and the form and the structures of the various spaces of worship um, all yeah. the way up into the Holy of Holies. And so recognizing that uh, investing in beauty and creativity, both in terms of time and talent and treasure, is something that goes back to the Old Testament. And that is part of the difficulty with the arts is they are experienced subjectively, whether they're objectively good or not. Yeah. And so uh, whenever there's going to be change, part of, this is one of the hard things about leading a church is that someone comes to your church and something about the way it is tends to keep them there. Mm. But then you're always trying to change the church to reach people who are not there and recontextualize it as culture moves and reconsider the next generation on a regular basis. And so sometimes the reason that people came ends up changing and then they get disappointed by that. And you hope that as people grow maturity, their ability to be disappointed increases over time. Yeah. And, and especially their ability to be disappointed by things that aren't the gospel or the faithful teaching of the Bible. And we don't want people to ever be to tolerate being disappointed by that. That's not a good deal. Right. So, but especially like those subjective forms and structures and styles of music and environments, part of the goal is to recontextualize on a regular basis as culture changes. We want the gospel to be inhabiting the culture faithfully. Yeah. Okay. Here's another question that's kind of in the same uh, ballpark is why do we sometimes change song lyrics from their original writing? So someone is paying attention if they notice that. Yeah. We don't do it much. No, we don't. We don't do it frequently. I'd say most songs we sing, we sing in the, you know, with the lyrics that they were originally. 99.9% probably. Yes. But occasionally we do. And, um, you know, so we're not looking to do it all the time. So something must be going on if it's like, hey, we're going to actually change this. Uh, It really takes. Why do we do that? It really requires us to disagree with the lyric as written or to have pastoral concerns about how the lyric is written will be understood. Yeah. I'd have to be pretty strong. My, as my wife's a songwriter and, um, it, it is, it is frustrating as a songwriter when people critique something that you've spent gobs of time kind of thinking about and working on, um, without spending nearly as much time on the critique. So that, that can be frustrating. So we, we try to do it really, um, sparingly and we try to give the writers the benefit of the doubt. Um, I feel like there's a posture of your heart that matters a lot when anytime you're critiquing anything, I mean, even this podcast is about critiquing, right? Um, one, one standpoint can assume I understand hearts and motives and I'm just kind of blast everybody. And it's, you know, another one is saying, and this is what we try to use is we're, we're called to shepherd and lead the people that God has brought here. And we want every element of the service to do the best job that it can to form them more into the image of Christ. Yeah. Um, and so, so, but here's, I guess a follow up to this is why not just skip the song, right? Yeah. Like if there's a song that's yeah. like, Hey, we don't, cause there's plenty of songs we don't sing cause we don't like the lyrics. Yeah. We don't feel like they represent how we want to form people through music. Um, right. And really that is what forms people to a large degree. You get these lyrics stuck in your head and, yeah. And in you know times of crisis, it's like sometimes that pops in, and so why you know why not just go well rather than change it, let's just not do that song. Why yeah. change it? If it's enough of a banger, then it's worth working to make it work. Like yeah. I think about the song Ten Thousand X. That was called a hundred billion. X. Yeah, so will I. So will I. Yeah. That's the song I've been thinking of too. I, I think there's actually two parts of that mm-hmm. that we've yeah. changed, and, and I don't know if I can even think of maybe this, other songs. The song is the song them. is phenomenal, and it's really it, good. It moves me. It moves people. There's one line in it in particular that I I was very concerned about, where it says, "Every one of them talking about every single human is a child of God," whereas I think the overwhelming teaching in Scripture is that every single person is made in the image of God. But it reserves that child of God language for someone who's been converted yeah, and comes to Christ in faith and repentance. And so, this uh, this metaphor of adoption is really reserved in Scripture for people who have come to faith in Jesus. That's not to say that God doesn't care about every image bearer. It's not to say that God doesn't love every image bearer. But we, I want, I do, don't want to get in the habit of saying like all seven million people on earth are children of God because, on the one hand, I hear people saying they're made in His image, and that's true. On the other hand, Scripture refers to uh, the the familial metaphor being only applied to people who have been converted and come to a saving faith in Jesus. And so I just didn't want people, and this was a group conversation, it wasn't me, but yeah, I shared in that concern of, I don't want people going around thinking every single person is a child of God. No, I want them to become children of God. Right. Yeah. So I think that's where we changed the lyric from 
um, every precious one a child you died to save. That was the original lyric. We changed it to every precious one a picture of your grace. Yes. Something like that. Okay. So, so yeah, so we'll do that from time to time, but I try to not do it a lot um, for the reasons that you guys mentioned. Yeah. One other quick reason is just to avoid um, unnecessary distraction in the moment. Some Sometimes a lyric will just bring up a whole chain of thought that is like not helpful to what, what we would feel helpful in the moment to our congregation. So occasionally we'll just try to pick something that maybe is a little less reactive. Yeah. All right. Next question, uh, shifting gears here a bit. What's the best way to deal with a spouse that is taking so much time away from his family doing to be due to being distracted by his phone? So somebody says, sounds here like a wife is saying my husband is distracted by his phone all the time my guess is this has come up right this is not like what's the best way to have my first conversation about it my guess is this is an ongoing recurring issue frustration challenge what's the best way to deal with that this is probably not totally different than any other way that a wife would have a grievance with the husband and like the process I recommend for that so I think first you're going to want to at the minimum, let the husband know, like, hey, what you're doing is bothering me. And doing so in a way that's uh, not necessarily attacking or accusatory, but if you can, the phrase that I give a lot of our ministry leaders is lead with vulnerability, which means part of the reason that you don't like that is because it's hurting you somehow, like you feel hurt by that. And to admit you feel hurt is requires vulnerability versus saying you're stupid, get off your phone, doesn't require vulnerability. So saying like, hey, I feel like you, I feel hurt, I feel not considered. I, I feel like a single mom and I feel like you're, so being able to say like these kind of, I feel vulnerable statements about that's like, I think always phase one. And then uh, over time that there may be an initial like, Oh wow, I didn't know, you know, and then going, okay, okay. Remember how last time I said, I felt like this. And then I feel like you listened, but now nothing's changed. I want to help you be a present husband. What are some ways we could do that? And so it becomes initially you're going like, Hey, I want to make this a, I want to help you make this an, an us thing. And if there's still these repeated patterns, then I do think at to the point of where it's legitimately like an ongoing sense of like abandonment problem, I think introducing community into that process is a lot of what even the pattern of scripture we see, you bring someone in like, Hey, because at that point, if someone's been addressed and listened to and confronted, now it's not just a phone problem. Now it's a, I don't care. I'm unwilling to change problem, which changes what the problem is. Yeah. Now the problem is the refusal to, uh, consider the other more significant myself. Now I'm now I'm not really caring, or at least I'm caring about something more. And so that appropriate escalation I think matters. Yeah. I do think that um really functionally how the phone is designed to be addictive. They want you to keep looking at it. Notifications are soul sucking, money making tools that do what they're supposed to do. Yep. And so some empathy for what big tech is doing to hearts and minds is warranted. But there's a, sometimes there's even just particular apps that need to be gone and going, hey, if TikTok is getting in the way of you, at if a TikTok gets in the way of intimacy in your marriage for three minutes a day, it's not worth it. Just delete it. It's stupid anyway. And so trying to be clear about the calculus you're making. But I think introducing community, and if introducing community on a lay level doesn't go super well, then at some point that is like a, a pastoral problem. And I think not just trying to apply for counseling, but when the problem is my husband cares about his phone more than he cares about me, that's now like a church discipline level issue. Sure. I think, um, my, so my wife is getting a, a master's degree in counseling right now. And she introduced a term to me that was new to me called meta communication, which is communicating about communicating. And I think every, every couple needs the ability to communicate about how they communicate and create a space in their normal communication rhythm where they can have serious conversations. Uh, if you don't have a regular space in your, in your life where you're undistracted and, and able to sit with one another and really listen, then, then having this conversation is going to be super hard. And, and I'm the worst at this. I love to bring up whatever's on my mind right when it's on my mind. And usually Christy's doing like 5,000 other things and it's, it's very difficult and it's disappointing to me because I feel like she's not taking me seriously or whatever. It's frustrating to her because she's doing a bunch of other stuff. And so what we've done is we've kind of established a regular date night and that's a great time when, you know, we've, <clears throat> we've gotten away. We're no longer in the context of her work, which in large part is our home. 
um, we're sitting down together, we're undistracted and I can say, Hey, can I, can I bring something up that has been on my mind? And are you in a place where you feel like you could hear this? Um, yeah. and, and she can do the same with me. So I think creating that initial space for that conversation really helps. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause I'm imagining, you know, a husband on his phone and it's like, why are you always on your phone? <laughs> Right. And now it's like an attack. It feels attacking and it feels, yeah. def- and now there's defense and now there's justification and now there's none and none it's back and forth. And well, I was really looking at my calendar cause I'm just trying to help you. Right. And right. And it's all that. And so when it's really like more of this macro trend of like, here's this thing I feel like I'm noticing. Yeah. You know, um, if you can creating create- a, a, a less sort of high pressure moment to right. talk about that. Less threatening. And he may even be able to open up and share why he's on a So maybe he doesn't feel safe in the spaces when he's on his and maybe that's an escape from something i mean there there could be a lot going on there sure. if you have the space to talk about it yeah cool all right uh, next question this is also kind of in a family kind of realm and i'm curious to uh this will be fun to ask you too as a parent how do you handle when your kids grow up and move away to college and stray away from spending time with god how can you avoid feeling like a failure as a parent well, first, I'd like to say that my son has never walked away from God, so. <laughs> he's two. Because he's two. <laughs> oh, yeah, because he's two. But, uh, yeah, so part of why I thought this would be interesting is that neither of you, nor do I, none of us, have kids that have gotten to this point in just stage of life, right? All of our kids are still at home. Um, and yet there's a lot of people in our church that are older than us, that have life experience than us, and I think it's even interesting that's, that they would – I can imagine someone in that situation going like, I'm not going to ask these clowns. They've never been through this. Yeah. But here we are as somebody's pastor who's asking that question. Yeah. How would you try to, um, how did you try to help them? And, and part of what I thought even in just in the question is to go, you know, you don't have to wait till a kid goes to college to see them straying away from what you've taught them right? and to feel tempted to feel like a failure. So it's a little bit of this question of like, how do you navigate when your kids aren't really doing the things that you hoped they would do that you feel like you trained them to do and you can get mad at them or you can kind of get mad at yourself a bit and go, well, maybe, maybe it's my problem and I feel like a failure and now I have these regrets or I have this guilt. How do you, how do you handle that? That feeling of failure, that feeling of guilt as a parent. It feels like there's pockets of our culture, at least in the Christian culture where I almost feel like parents overestimate their, um, the effect that they can have on their kids. Um, you know, your, your kid's relationship with God is, is primarily a function of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts and you don't have control over that. Uh, you can model and you can lovingly encourage, which is not nagging. That would be not helpful, at least in my context. That's been what I've seen. Uh, but, but a lot of that is, it's the Lord working in their hearts. I mean, I, some of my kids regularly spend time with the Lord in the word and others don't. And I don't feel like I've done anything different with one or the other. I just feel like God's working in that way in their hearts. So I think be faithful, pray like crazy, trust the Lord. And it's not, that's not on you. Like that's not your responsibility to, to, you can't, uh, you can't, fan the flames of their um their devotion what would you do if you felt like you know it actually kind of is on me like i was on my phone a lot Mm. and you know i really i had all these things i thought i would do in terms of taking them on dates and spending intentional time and you know reading the bible with them or you know and i'm not talking like i had these some some other you know, professional parent person gave me these huge expectations, but, but, you know, I kind of, I really didn't do the job that I feel like I should have done. And so I can relate that on more of a discipleship level. Like I I don't have my, I haven't had enough time yet for my kid to fail and disappoint me tremendously. We haven't even tried potty training yet. So here it comes. (laughs) Yeah. Ask me again in a year when I, I can tell you all about where anality comes from. So, I have a bunch of failed disciples, though, like people that I spent time with, that I shared tables with, that I had in my home, that I tried to love, and like in like the spiritual father sense, uh, invested 
emotional, financial energy into uh, trying to help them be connected to Jesus. Some of them have gone off the rails and now embody everything that I try to fight against in terms of my commitment to Jesus and his authority of his word. Some of them have just grown cold, which is almost more sad. Mm. People being angry at God and angry at the church, there's at least some affection for something there. They've not just kind of like wandered off into medicating themselves in the coldness and that drift. I have family members who uh, are disinterested in Jesus or remotely interested in Jesus. And it's like, they're like lukewarm, like revelation talks about, you know? And so in that sense, that's like almost more heartbreaking. It's like be against him or before him. Don't be meh on him. Mm -hmm. It's like we're in the movie theater yelling fire and people are like me. But you feel like in those cases, you there's more you could have done. And a lot, a lot of the cases, like my conscience condemns me on who and how I was in a lot of environments in those situations. And what I found is there's a couple of things that, one, like I have to grieve it and lament it, both grieve and lament who and how I am, or especially who and how I was. Like, I feel like that's healthy. Like it's one thing to um, make a mistake. It's another thing to let the mistake tell you who you are. Mm. That That's that's a diffi- more difficult layer of honesty, mm-hmm. not just admitting a fault or admitting I should have done this and I did that, but going I should have done this and I did that because this is the type of person that I am slash the type of person that I was. And that's a grappling with it on that level, being honest about deep failures. And so doing that before the Lord, first of all, and being able to trust Jesus' atonement for that sin and trust that atonement for that folly as well. And then after I've kind of made peace with Jesus about it, I want to go in as often as possible, take responsibility to the person going, hey, I misrepresented Jesus to you. And trying to do that, not in such a way that I'm trying to manipulate or control some outcome, but I'm going, I just feel like before the Lord, I owe them an apology. And so you're really doing that because it's the right thing to do, not because it's going to be an an ingredient in a different outcome. And I feel like when I've done uh, that kind of level of honesty, it doesn't necessarily, when I've done that, when I've practiced that level of honesty with the goal of this is going to help them be different, then it goes really bad. And, yeah. and it, it doesn't do what I want it to do. And when I practice that level of honesty with the goal of, I just want to do the right thing before the Lord, my heart is actually uh, salved and comforted. And still often they don't do what they're going to do. And that's going back to the Matthew piece of going, everyone, like I don't know a lot of people who are Calvinists when they read Romans 9, but when it comes to their parenting, all that's of a good. sudden they're not. Yeah. And they're over-responsible and, but I do think that grief and lament is appropriate anytime someone's wandering from the Lord, whether they're our kids or not. And I just think that the more affection we have for that person, the greater the grief and lament. And so with our children and with our f- disciples, that should be greater than if some random person in Timbuktu walks away from the Lord, like, well, I don't know them. So yeah, it doesn't really break my heart. Yeah, it's good. I've never met a parent without regrets. Jesus knows his own. No one's going to snatch him from his hands. We're going to do our best and trust the Lord and believe in the gospel. Well, we really do have to believe the gospel. I mean, I I think it's interesting in so many other areas you can repent and have a chance to change it, right? If I'm gossiping, I can repent and stop gossiping, right? If I'm, you know, ignoring the Lord, I can begin to pray and begin to engage scripture, but you kind of can't fix it. And so it's funny because it sort of reveals that we really do believe the gospel when we think we also can make it better, which really shows you, you don't believe the gospel that much and this is one of those times where it's like you can't go back you can't redo it you can maybe impact the relationship for the future but you really can't go undo what you did or redo what you didn't do and so you have you have nothing left but the grace of god and um so i think leaning into that's a big deal amen all right um so the next question is uh kind of a, a theology question but really in in more personal form and um I could see it relating to the last question, but even deeper. Uh, what would you say to somebody who's experienced a lot of loss throughout their life and as a result seriously doubts that God is good and doubts that God is good in general, but also specifically doubts that God is good to them? The first thing I'd say is you are uh, talking like biblical authors when you talk like that. I think if you look at especially the Old Testament, 
like the oldest book that was written. It's like even before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is uh, the book of Job, which is a really long dialogue about that exact question because of all this garbage that happened to me. Is God good? And can I trust him? And do I know better than him? And et cetera, et cetera. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, talked about this after his, his Grief Observed book is a journal from after his wife died from cancer. And he said, I don't think I've ceased believing in God, but I think I might have ceased believing that God is good, which is scarier, mm. yeah, scarier and worse. Mm. C.S. Lewis is not stupid, and he's a man of faith. You know? And so like there's, we're talking about Job, C.S. Lewis, David, biblical authors. So I wouldn't feel... Um, C.S. Lewis isn't a biblical author, but those other two are. <laughs> C.S. Lewis. Just, just, to <laughs> clarify. just to clarify, there is not... Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah. Near biblical, Near. <laughs> he's close. Um, yeah. So anyway, so all those jokes said he. Uh, there's a lot of people who have felt like that, and so one of the I think the lies that Satan wants to get us to believe when we're thinking stuff like that is that I'm special for thinking this, yeah. or I'm I'm unique in my sophistication or doubts or questions or resistance. I'm not saying the person who has this is thinking that, but I am saying that this kind of like lie that I'm alone, I'm by myself, I'm not like other people is I think one of the folly things there. Uh, I do think that when you look at the idea of the crucifixion of Jesus, that you had a God who had all the privilege, all the power, all the prestige, and he gives it up and he walks on earth. He's misunderstood. He's betrayed. He's denied. And then he's slowly tortured and murdered. Uh, Part of the hope of the gospel is this idea that um, really, really bad things can happen to uh, relatively innocent people. And that God gets it and he understands. And, yeah, that he, and he chooses to enter into it. He chooses to enter into that. So he, he inhabits that story of Job, the one who uh, was righteous on the surface and then loses everything. And and so he Jesus inhabits that story to the nth degree because Job loses everything but his life. Jesus loses his life, everything and his life. Yeah. And so there's he goes a step farther than even Job in that. And this is what the craziest part of the gospel story is, is that that which is the worst thing ever ends up being the best thing ever that it takes a while to find out how God is going to work all things together for good. In Jesus case, it takes a a full three days in this. There's this period of silence when Israel's um, in exile and they're waiting for the Messiah to come. It's 400 years. So sometimes you get your, why God let it happen in three days. Sometimes you get your, why God let it happen in 400 years. Either way, you may not know why God let these things happen until you die and you're with them. And, but we do know that God does, in fact, work all things together for good. It doesn't mean all things are good or that suffering isn't real, but it does mean that somehow the story writer is writing a good story. And it's kind of like that beginning of the story when you're watching a movie and everything's good. And I tend to find myself just waiting for the crap to hit the fan. <laughs> you're like, when's the plot happen? You know, because all this pre-story stuff is boring. And sometimes when you're just stuck in the middle of the plot happening, you feel like, is God really good? What's going on? And that's another appropriate place for grief and lament. And I think that reading the books like Lamentations, reading books like the Psalms, reading books like Job, help our, uh, you know, the radio station, Positive Encouraging, Caleb. <laughs> sure. There's a place for Positive Encouraging, but I do think that if you're really a student of the Old Testament, you're not going to have just a positive faith. You're going to have a really sober, realistic, gritty suffering faith and for a lot of american christians we need to relearn how to grieve and lament and we need to learn some of that jewish sobriety and so inhabiting those books and reading them i think is a good place to go because mostly you'll find peers when you felt alone yeah good yeah one just one quick thing i'd add um this is from second corinthians the apostle paul says that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and that really is it takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to believe that God is big enough to turn sometimes devastating circumstances into something that will result in this eternal weight of glory. Um, we have lots of examples of that being true throughout the scripture, the cross being the, the greatest example. Uh, but man, it's hard to believe in in the moment. But that's, that's the faith choice that we're making. And, it, and if we don't believe that, we are choosing to believe something else in its place. And we have to ask, am I... Is, is there more evidence to believe that or the other thing? So, 
All right. Well, the rest of these questions that we're going to hit uh, for from here are all kind of in the bucket of like redemption gateway and kind of local church leadership. So a little bit of kind of behind the scenes cool. of about plans, our thought processes, how we, how we do life as pastors. Uh, there's a question about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. So we'll kind of uh, hit a number of things kind of in that category. Um, the first one is, is this, we had gotten a question that we answered um, on the Sunday. I forget which service it was. It was related to civil disobedience. When is the appropriate time for civil disobedience. And so this person gave kind of a follow-up on that, which, uh, you know, our answer to that was you, you disobey the government when it means that, uh, you need to obey God, right? There's that part in Acts five where, um, the apostles say, Hey, we're not going to obey man. We're going to obey God. Human, human government is asking us to disobey the Lord. We're going to obey the Lord and not man. That kind of thing. I think I explained that in the sort of most complicated, confusing way possible just now. So anyway, <laughs> go back and listen to it if you want. So follow-up about that is uh, if we're supposed to follow God and not man, when the pandemic happened, why did churches close when God says not to forsake the gathering? Instead, we follow, this question asker says, we followed mandates from man. What was learned and what will be done differently if we're faced with that again? Yeah, so first I'd say we didn't follow any mandates by man. We were in Arizona, and there was never a requirement for religious gatherings to close. Our local elders, uh, considering the unfor- the unknown variability of the COVID-19 stuff, and our local elders, based on having partial information and considering the good of the whole, decided to shut down. So... We weren't really connected to mandates. There are times that we look to the government for data or information, but we weren't submitting to the government really ever in staying down or in shutting down or in opening up. So at least in Arizona, we're fortunate to have recommendations or admonitions, but it wasn't like in other places, like even some places now in Canada where you still can't gather. So we weren't following that as local elders considering various things. There also in church history during the plague, the black death churches did shut down and do like local, like emphasis on rather than the whole gathering. Um, they just did communion separate in homes and door to door and stuff like that. So there's precedence in church history that when pandemics happen, there is a kind of divide and conquer. We'll get through this mentality. So that's not like a first time. It wasn't just like the mainstream lamestream media whipping us up and getting us all spooked on stuff. So doing our best as local elders to evaluate stuff and consider the whole of our body. We did what it was. I do think that there's this, uh, in Christian ethics or in pro-life ethics, there's what's called the, the, um, not the proximity principle. Um, the proc, what's the word? Precautionary principle. That's the word precautionary principle that it's the same when we talk about, um, being pro-life, this, uh, whole idea of the precautionary principle says we don't know exactly when like the DNA is finished fusing, we don't know exactly when uh, the cell implants into the the uterine wall. Um, but out of an abundance of precaution, we're going to say that we're going to have zero like interference with the reproductive process because we we don't even without knowing exactly when it would be murder or not murder, we're going to say no intervention past. Um, uh, the time when the, the sperm hits the egg. So like, that's kind of like the precautionary principle is like, because we want to avoid murder, we don't want to do that. Second thing I'd say is that's a, that's a biblical principle. Like you have stories in the old Testament. I taught this on faith in a pandemic on our first close Sunday when it was like me and three tech people, mm-hmm. which is like the most bummer of a day I think I've ever had in the local church where um, there's two texts that come to mind. One's called the parapet text where um, the, when Moses is writing about when you're building a house, you have to construct a parapet around the ceiling Parapets exist basically to keep idiots from falling off houses. And look, Moses makes it a law. You have to make a parapet because when you're building a house, you need to consider people who will do harm to themselves um, because idiots will do harm to themselves. And so structuring a society in such a way that you're trying to, out of in love, consider idiots who may do harm to themselves is, is part of the deal. So that's the parapet principle. Um, try to keep idiots from harming themselves. And we're all idiots <laughs> some way, shape, or form, so... Yeah, well, who, regardless of who is an idiot or not idiot, there are idiots, and so 
There you go. Uh, then the second one comes from this story, and it's in the book of Exodus, where it's it's in case law, someone's chopping wood with an axe, and the head of the axe goes flying off and kills someone. And the word that they used to describe the person who was chopping wood with the axe was shock or murderer, um, because it's murder by negligence. And so you should check on the head of your axe every time you use it, because if the head of your axe goes flying off, God considers you a murderer if that kills someone. And so you being negligent and taking care of your axe, actually, you're liable. It's not like, well, they should have exercised more. Like, it's actually, no, you're liable. So so, so I, I want to push into this, though. So, so these precautionary principles kind of shape, well, we're not exactly how, how bad this COVID-19 thing is. We yeah. recognize that there's unavailable data. And so out of because of, like, the principle of precaution, we chose to shut down for a little while. Right? And we opened up faster than most places. Yeah. And in hindsight, it's like, well, the reality of hindsight is, in hindsight, you don't have the same amount of information that you have now. Yeah, I was looking at the the graph the other day of the case count in Arizona um, to try to see, like, where is the most recent Omicron spike kind of compared to the previous ones. And uh, one of my kids was standing by me while I was looking at this on the computer, and they were like, wait a minute. So way back there at the beginning, that's when we were all like stuck in our houses and there was like hardly anyone in Arizona getting COVID. We yes. didn't know. And we then didn't know. here in December of 2020, there's this huge spike. And then January of 2022, there's this huge spike and yet we're meeting now. So we didn't know then there is more we do now. I, I think the the next question kind of in that question was, well, what would we do differently? In hindsight, I would do nothing differently if I don't have the information that I have now. Yeah. I think we're doing. What, I have a clear yeah. conscience that based on the information that we had or with the available stuff that we were working with, I think we made the right choice. If I knew what I knew now and I was like the prophet of 2020 who knew more than everybody, then we would have done things differently. But I do feel like part of making decisions in leadership and in life is you act based on the information that you have and you kind of have to move forward with a clear conscience based on the information that you have. Yeah. Nowadays, there's all these more treatments. They're way more successful in hospitals. The vaccines take the notch down pretty substantially, uh, do prevent a ton of stuff. I think now there's so much more available to people to like deaths are way down, even though cases are way up. And a lot of that has to do with a lot of like the way medicine is improved. And I, so I think what, like I've, I don't wouldn't do anything really differently. I probably like it's one of those. I if I was a pastor by myself at a church with no other elders because I don't really watch the news, I probably wouldn't have closed because I wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> People were texting me like three days before I closed, like, "What are you doing about coronavirus?" And I was like, "What's coronavirus?" So because I had my, I was in the middle of a dissertation. I was like deep in like libraries. I didn't know what current events were going on. Well, I remember, I remember man, I remember this. I remember that week, Monday of of that week matthew was like hey do you think maybe we should serve communion differently because of this coronavirus thing and we said yeah why don't we go ahead and do that and by wednesday i was like nah we're overreacting and then that wednesday is when tom hanks and the utah jazz and all these people Wilson! <laughs> got covid and the world changed and uh yeah it was kind of crazy all right here's a here's another question that's kind of coming out of the covid reality uh, this person says, your emphasis on attending Sunday services at church rather than choosing to watch Sunday services online is clear and easily understood. So that's interesting. I guess we've made a good point about that. Good job, guys. Um, you emphasize fellowship. What are your feelings about people who prefer to fellowship in smaller settings, such as their RCs and other ministries? And so I, I guess I'm maybe reading between the lines here of someone going like, hey, I, I'm with you on fellowship, but... Um, these large gatherings still feel a little unsafe to me. I'd rather fellowship in RCs and fellowship in other ministries. Like, yeah. can, can that count for me instead of yeah. coming on Sundays? I feel like one of the things we've learned through this process is, um, I and mean, we always believed it was important to, to come and be together in person, especially for the corporate gathering. There's a, I think there's something unique about that moment. Um, but one of the things that I've learned through, through this experience is that's, that's re like that's even more important than I thought, and so um, I think my hope as a shepherd would just be that people would understand as they're making the best decision for themselves based on the input that they get from their doctor and their whole story. I mean, we don't we can't speak specifically to each person's context, but my hope would be that they heavily weight the value of the corporate worship moment. 
that um, one of the things that's marked the people of God forever has been a corporate gathering together to, to kind of confess and believe um, who God is, what he's done, and understand our role in that. Um, and that that's really a, a formative thing. And I'll tell you, the folks that have disengaged from that for a longer period of time are the folks that have either wandered away or are really struggling right now. I mean, it, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that every person, you know, that's exactly what's going to happen, but it, we want people to, to place enough um, weight on that side of the equation when they're trying to determine what to do. So the other thing I'd say too, is there are great house churches out there. And if you'd prefer to be part of a house church, then you can do that, but we're not a house church. Uh, and Redemption Gateway gathers under the preached word where we administrate sacraments and sing and address one other songs and hymns and spiritual songs every Sunday morning. It's like what we do. We also design. So, but what about someone who's like, you know what? Yeah, and I like that, and I watch that online, and then I go to my RC or I go to my women's table or I go to my you, men's fight club, and, and I, I just would rather do it that way. I would say I that still you like, do. I like that preaching, and I yeah. like this thing, but I just would rather We design those other environments assuming that you're also get it coming to the to the corporate gathering um we so so there are elements that are not but i am coming to the corporate gathering things. i'm coming online i watch online. so that's my point is you don't you don't do it online you watch other people do it online you're not sitting under preaching you're consuming content on youtube you're not gathering to address one another in songs and the spiritual songs you're not listening to people saying you're not seeing other people you're not participating in the hospitality structures of the church welcoming new people in and so much of being a part of a local church is you deciding which preferences uh, matter most to you and then you giving up on the rest of them. And so preferring to fellowship in smaller gatherings is, uh, again, fine. Prefer that. Yeah. There's a lot of things I prefer that we don't do as a church. Like I, I think one of the myths about church leadership is that you get what you want all the time. <laughs> and it's like I think part of it is you're trying to consider the whole and sure. do your best. and. None, very few of my preferences, if I was like me by myself leading everything, is how it's going. But part of the nature of the church is you have real responsibility and real leadership that's delegated to various people, and they do it different than you, and your preferences aren't catered to all the time, and that's how it should be. And and I think it's good for us to suffer, and suffer's a very like lightly applied word here, to yeah. suffer our preferences not being met all the time. But I would say that like, sitting under preaching physically, singing in the room physically, like neurobiologically, hormonally, all five senses being kicked in at the same time is part of like the formative value of the way God built the way he did. Yeah. Okay. All right. Here's the next question. As Redemption Gateway grows, are there future plans to expand the facilities to accommodate the growth or instead plant another church? So I'll take this uh, out of the gate. The, the first thing is um, we don't view church planning as a, as a growth management strategy, but as a mission strategy. So uh, when God raises up a leader with a heart and a desire and the gifting and calling and maturity to go plant another congregation, we'll do that regardless of how big we are or, or what that looks like. Um, that's more of a mission move than a growth uh, management move. Um, there are not future plans currently to expand the facilities. We did build our, our campus in such a way that it could be expanded. Actually, the, the eastern wall of the box is designed in such a way that we could you know add to it and make that room a little bit bigger. Uh, there's also space back in the grass and kind of the south side of the property where we could add buildings, we could add classrooms, we could add other things. Um, and so it's built with the kind of flexibility in mind to be able to do that. But there aren't current plans um, and I think we're at a place now where we'd go, you know what, we're going to try to see how much we can do with mo adding services rather than expanding the facilities at this point, uh, given just that there's substantial financial cost uh, to that. Um, you know, there's money that we're currently paying as part of our mortgage currently. Uh, you know, we probably could take on more debt to build more buildings, but I don't know that that would be the wisest thing. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I think the day could come when this, when that, there would be future plans. There currently aren't. Yeah, practically, I don't see that happening in, in the next three to five years. I mean, maybe at the soonest, that'd be when something like that would happen. Whereas, I feel like with church planning, it's more uh, about the spirit placing a burden in a qualified group, and you send them. 
which that that would probably that can happen a lot faster than five years. Whereas, at least in terms of our current growth numbers, finances, it'd be. Yeah, I I almost wonder even just in the future how many more campuses like ours will get built. Yeah, just for churches. Like I kind of wonder, given all the move digitally, um, given lots of other things, I just kind of go like, I wonder if we'll be among the last. The last unicorn. Yeah, the la- yeah, just the I don't know if we're a unicorn, but the last of these kind of large church campuses. Um, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah. all right. Um, <clears throat> next question is uh, I really appreciate this question. Uh, what do you do to protect your to protect your faith and to keep your heart soft to mm. keep serving as pastors? So that's an insightful question. Because I think the the questioner there assumes that actually being a pastor might make it hard <laughs> to keep your faith and to keep your heart soft. Yeah. Um, so I don't know who's asking that or what insight they have, but I would say that that's actually true. I think one of the myths of church leadership is that you know just instantly you're going to work at a church and just become a more spiritual person. I think you actually have greater temptations towards cynicism, towards hardness of heart. You experience lots of disappointment. You experience a lot of the world the way it's not supposed to be. So what do you guys do, uh, speaking personally, about protecting your faith, keeping your heart soft? I mean, there's a there's a number of things that come to mind. Uh, one is just what I think the Lord does, which is doesn't let me get too good at this. Like I, I fail a lot um, in the things that, I really, you know, care about. And so it keeps me really dependent on the spirit. Um, I can't drift too far from God cause I can't like, I can't personally handle the phoniness of pretending to be something I'm not, it just kills me. So, um, so I have to just, you know, repent and believe the gospel all the time. Um, so that's something God does. And then I, I think just understanding kind of certain rhythms of what, what's a healthy kind of work rest rhythm. Um, I've, I've got my own kind of rhythms on that, that, that have been helpful. I think having a wife that is not impressed with the title pastor at all, like zero impressed, nor does she have any desire to be a pastor's wife for any more time than I'm a pastor. Like that, <laughs> it's just not part of her value equation in her mind. She, she loves it. She's, she enjoys it, but um, she's not impressed. My kids aren't impressed. You know, it, keep, it keeps it keeps it real. I have friends that aren't impressed. <laughs> you know? You are pretty unimpressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And For example, I, Luke and I are not impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think just having relationships where we, like with, with friends that we can follow Jesus together as just as people, not as some special class of people. Um, you know, I, I feel like with a number of the pastors here, even here on staff, we can we can talk about, following the Lord and pursue discipling one another just as brothers in Christ, not as, you know, some other tier of ministry, something. So those are some things that come to mind initially. I think that there is always this phases of disillusionment that you have to go through. And I think disillusionment, I think I was talking about this with Tyler Johnson a couple months ago the beauty of disillusionment is that you're admitting that there are illusions mm. and now there are less illusions. And so just being able to be sober about the, the grief and pain that comes when you're being disillusioned at being disappointed in yourself or being disappointed by others, both directions is it's actually a sobering process that the veneer or the shine or the fake gets kind of stripped away and you realize how much, and how deep and how wide and how gripping the grace of Jesus really is. And you have to ask yourself the question, did I become a pastor to tell people about grace? Or did I become a pastor to convince people to become less dependent on grace over time as they get morally more pure or something like that? And so that is hard. Um, I don't think that it's particularly challenging as a pastor I think that I talk to social workers, I talk to therapists, I talk to cancer doctors, I talk to people who work in the foster care, kinship and adoption situation. I talk to a lot of people that whenever you're proximate to suffering and pain 
and unanswered prayers or prayers that are answered in a way that you don't want them to be answered. So I don't think pastors are unique in that, but I think that anytime you have a serving people who are suffering thing as your main vocation, there's that. I think if there's one thing that's uniquely difficult to pastors, and I tell this to, I think there's this article Karen Newhoff came out with the other week called like why they're not really your friends. Yeah. And it was like, it's a good article. I hated it. I hated every word of it. It <laughs> depressed me. It th- Those are the type of articles that made me go like, do I have friends or do I have people who go to my church who like having... They, they like calling the pastor their friend. Yeah, they like, like feeling proximity to the pulpit or something like that. And, and that kind of like second-guessing thing on even like last year, a bunch of people left and some of them were like in my small group right. who, I, who are slanderous or at least defamatory. Uh, gospy and it's like you're my home and that kind of stinks when it wasn't just that they left it was that they left and and said we we're leaving because we don't trust you judging your heart yeah yeah and again but if you're a leader at a company and you have friends at work and then they take another job that pays 30 percent more and you're like oh i thought we were friends but i guess that was conditional on how much i was willing to how much you're paid here so so i think that kind of like are we friends or are we just kind of transactionally benefiting each other right now I don't think that's unique to pastors, but I think it's in a lot of places. I think that being a pastor creates more space for you to talk about it and be felt and like be legitimized in it. And I think there's an, there's a, a really high percentage of like holy God fearing people at our church where I don't feel any pressure to like pretend that stuff doesn't happen. And there's enough people that I know who are emotionally aware of Jesus loving people who lead companies that I can talk to about similar realities. And so yeah. I do feel understood and known. I think that's a big part of it is feeling known and understood by like you two and other people at the church who I think under like, there's not like that super loneliness thing going on because other leaders, other spiritual leaders, other pastors kind of get it. So I think uh, one of the ways that I find myself getting into funks is when I do feel like maybe nobody knows me. And then when I kind of step out of that and I realize people do know me and they do get it and I'm yeah. not that special and my emotional process isn't that unique. Yep. I, I I tend to feel like I'm in the mind of someone mm-hmm. to be thought of, to be considered. And again, it goes back to the crucifixion of Jesus and it's going, what do I think I signed up for in following Jesus, period? Not even just being a pastor Yeah, is some of this reality. Yeah, the only thing I would, I guess the couple things I would add is um, I try to just have a real relationship with the Lord. Um, try to yeah. live what I preach as much as I can. I, you know, I preach more than I can live <laughs> just by the volume of how many sermons I preach, but I um, uh, am, am trying to do that. Um, I, a regular practice for me that's been really valuable has been um, taking retreat days every few months, and that always involves a kind of time of introspection and reflection and there's kind of a set of questions that I'll ask to help kind of uh, you know just check in on myself another thing that I think has been really helpful um, that we have kind of built into the culture here is we have a we have a lunch that we do with the pastors a couple times a month Matthew leads that and it's really kind of digging into just what's your life like what's your relationship with the Lord like how how are things going for you sometimes it's real serious sometimes it's more fun but it's kind of asking the questions that a lot of people are kind of hesitant to ask us because they view us as being kind of, you know, on a pedestal or something. And it's kind of a way of going, Hey, you know, maybe that you have people in your life that will ask you those questions, but in case you don't, we're going to create a space to do that. So I, I think that's been helpful as well. All right. Here's the last question is, uh, this person says, I listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast from Christianity today. You know, the three of us listened to that as well. A lot of people mm-hmm. listened to it last year. Uh, The person says, knowing spiritual abuse by leadership is not relegated only to one church. What guidelines do Gateway and Redemption Arizona have in place to guard against such abuse? So there's a lot there. If somebody is listening to our podcast here and has not listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill um, and maybe doesn't know about it, if you're you're not worried about it, don't worry about it. (laughs) Um, It was a very interesting podcast for especially those of us in church leadership and those of us who had experience and knowledge and kind of new people at Mars Hill. Um, and it was a you know church that really rose to prominence in the early 2000s um, and, uh, and had a pretty spectacular uh, fallout, um, you know, in kind of mid 2010s. Um, so that's kind of the, some of the story of it. So if you're not, if you don't know about it, don't worry about it. It was a bonkers podcast for me is I know about 
two thirds of the people they interviewed because I was in that, some of that school stuff, and so it's yeah. crazy. Like, well, and we could do probably a whole episode sometime. I'm not promising that we will on our reflections about that podcast. Um, but this question, whether someone's listening to the podcast or not, is really going, hey there seems to be this abuse of leadership that's going on in a lot of different places, right? Not just Mars Hill, but this, you know, you hear these stories. What do we, what do we do to try to guard against spiritual abuse, relational, emotional abuse from a kind of a leadership standpoint? How do we protect against that? A big part of that is been symptomatic of what we've been trying to do with marriages the last handful of years, especially with Vicki Demert on our staff working towards educating our staff and our lay leaders and our congregation as a whole on what abuse is, what constitutes abuse, what are the patterns that facilitate or make abuse possible? Because I think part of the question is until you understand what abuse is, how it functions and yeah. the way that people propagate it, you can't even begin to see it. So it's kind of like you got to educate people on the smell test first, right? Like what does abuse smell like? Well, until you know that you can't, even yeah, that what smell. is it and what isn't it? Yeah. What is it not? Right. You know, I think that's one of the things that's interesting now, especially in light of a podcast like that, is I think there is a kind of like, hey, abuse is in every every place I felt hurt means there was abuse. Right. Well, that's not quite true either. But but abuse is a real thing. And feeling abused is different than being abused and et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole lot that could be unpacked there. But I think the main thing is you try to help leaders be healthy people. That's like the primary guard against it because it's, it's kind of like sexual sin. Like you can't prevent it. But you can try to help people be healthy people and people who are walking in the way of Jesus, who are captivated by the way that Jesus uses power rather than the way that other people use power, who aren't walking in the way of Saul and the other oppressive pharaohs, but are leading differently and incongruently with the top-down model of power who are leading alongside and next to and from the bottom up and are not using power as something to be um used over people but something that comes up underneath people and lifts them up and and empowers them and helps them succeed and so trying to help our leaders be healthy people one and going back to those lunches we talked about and two trying to help our people know what abuse is and what it isn't so that one if you're prone towards a domineering spirit you can see it in yourself sometimes it's like uh, you know, I have a couple of friends who've had a bunch of skin cancer cut off their face. It's like, well, until you know what skin cancer looks like on your face, staring in the mirror is not going to help. But once you know what skin cancer looks like, then you can look in the mirror and you can go, oh, there's skin cancer. I should go get that cut off. And so there's an education piece that sometimes you don't know what you're looking at in the mirror until you've been trained and educated. And so that's aspect one. And aspect two of that is I don't know what skin cancer looks like on you until I know what skin cancer looks like. And so being able to call each other out on patterns of power use and those types of things is is a big part of that those are the two biggest things it's not so it's not really guarding against as much as it's trying to prevent the character that's predisposed to abusive patterns and to trying to help it be quickly identified um, or at least helping a pattern uh, be noticed before it becomes a long pattern that ends up being abusive is a big part of it yeah i, I, I think, think another big piece of it is plurality yeah that's what i was gonna say you know then go ahead and talk about it matthew Oh yeah, I just I think um, real plurality, where um, no one person has final authority on big decisions. So our elder team, uh, Luke is our lead pastor, but he, you know, you respond to uh, and are accountable to our elder team. Um, they actually could tell you no. They could fire you. They could change your salary. I mean, they they have real authority there, um, and all the way up throughout redemption in every authority system or structure there's plurality there isn't any one person who can who can you know on their own make a decision without it being challenged um, and i think that's super super important um, also uh not only structurally but relationally um having the ability to to push on people and feel like there isn't any person that's you know i can't oh i can't push on him because that would be inappropriate I, I think we work really hard to create a culture like that. Um, I actually, I've told people in the past, I feel like one of the roles that I play um, at Gateway is to be a, a friend to you. And I'm looking at Luke right now while I'm talking, but, and part of being a friend is being able to say hard things when I mm -hmm. feel like you need to hear them. Yep. And you know, that doesn't happen all the time. Uh, it happened probably more years ago when we were both a lot more rough around the edges, but, um, but I take that seriously. Like I, you know, I, I don't feel like my job is to protect the church from you because I don't think that's something that 
is good. needed. That's good. Yeah. But but I do feel like to be a good friend, a good friend is willing to say the hard things um, when they see them, and I feel like I receive that from you and from others as well. And um, we really fight to have those relationships um, in intact and present in at every you know at every leadership connection. I, I feel like Tyler has that. Um, he you know uh, other folks that are kind of at high level leadership positions have that. Yeah. It seems, I mean, as I, as I've reflected on those stories a lot, um, you know, I, I think the, the two things that make it where abuse thrives is when you have an unsubmissive leader or you have, um, the group of people that are supposed to hold that leader accountable or afraid. Yeah. So, um, they're either, that, that group is maybe afraid to confront the leader um, or they do confront a leader and the leader is not submissive. And then that group is afraid to level consequences that need to be mm -hmm. leveled because of that leader's lack of submission. Um, I mean, really, if, if you have a leader who's not submissive, which is what I heard over and over and over and over in that podcast, then there isn't a system that's going to make an unsubmissive leader submissive. They have to be removed. And if the, whole in uh if the whole kind of incentive structure of everything is built on not re removing that leader right. um then it will never happen um and so uh, not to oversimplify it but there is a sense in which going like people are looking for well what's a structure that could make a person with an abusive heart not abusive there isn't that doesn't exist it you doesn't just have to get the abuser out of there yeah and then you have to figure out well what's going on in us in our culture that's like kind of looking the other way on that. That's, you know, happy to benefit from this. Um, you know, all that. Sort that's, of stuff. that's why. So the way the question was asked, like, how do you guard against this? To me, I kind of flinch at that because I'm going, you can't really guard against it. You can create conditions where if it happens, you're prepared to pull the trigger. Right. Right. That's the question is if, if we are sitting around as elders going, Hey, if Luke got fired, could we afford that? Right. Yeah. If the answer, yeah. like, we need everyone to be fireable is part of the deal, is we can't have it built on personality, yes. and we can't have it built on product, we can't have it built on mm -hmm. something else. And well, and, and really sadly, I mean, in 2020, um, since the question asked related to Redemption Arizona, you know, we had to remove two lead pastors, not necessarily about that issue, but there is a sense in which going, like, if, if you can't remove a lead pastor, then, then you're creating an environment where that w sin can flourish whatever form it takes yeah um and i'm not i'm not trying to draw equations between mars hill and those particular situations um but that if that you know there has to be kind of a willingness to go you know what we'll all experience something that to a lot of people will feel worse because in the eyes of the lord it will be better and yeah. it will be healthy systemic health is so important because if, you, if you're already strained in other areas like strained financially or strained relationally and then you have to make the hard decision of removing a leader um that could sink the ship but if but if the overall health is is in a good spot then you have the margin or the ability to absorb i mean the, you just mentioned redemption did this last year there was a lot of like margin that was taxed mm -hmm. because there was health existing as a result of removing some folks and it, it was hard but we were able to get through because there you know there was enough kind of general health to yeah. to absorb it well in on a more positive note this is not on this conversation but remember when ricardo at redemption 10 stepped down to go coach football and jim and josh stepped up to lead and they basically said yeah our core of the church basically is the same they didn't take a huge financial hit. It wasn't like there's some people who like only liked Ricardo's preaching and they left, but those really weren't substantial to the core and health of the local church. Mm -hmm. So Redemption Tempe didn't like crumble and suffer because the personality left. And that to me is a, a, like representative of one of the indicators of like the test of did you have a healthy church culture or not is mm -hmm. can like the, the main charismatic leader leave and somebody else step in their place? And is it like, seismic platonic shifts or is it like oh well this was all, never really about that guy mm -hmm. yeah like, we liked being led by him but now right. he's not here now we have these other leaders and that's okay and and that to me was an indicator of the health of that and that meant that if ricardo was abusive they could have fired him 
Right. Right. You know, that's and to be of, clear, he wasn't. He was not. No, but that's, no, it had nothing to do but, with that. But that idea of like trying to pursue that type of culture where you're not dependent on some charismatic individual person that you that if you had to remove them, you couldn't. Right. That and that was, I think, the Ramsh Tempe to me was an example of what we should be pursuing as local church leaders. Yeah. Well, guys, um, that's uh, man. There were even more questions we didn't get to, um, so I guess we'll do that maybe next year if we had asked anything again. Uh, but appreciate you all listening. And um, next time, uh, Matthew, I don't think you'll be with us. That's all right. Sorry, man. That's all right. I but it's mean, been great to have you these last couple weeks. Lasted, yeah. And uh, I don't know exactly where we'll head as we go into these next few weeks, but um, it'll be fun. So stay tuned and uh, share this with someone who you think would benefit. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.